We are back. The Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And we are in uh, the third episode of our series within a series. Uh, we are in the overall series is critical theory, but we have uh, narrowed our focus over the last two episodes to talk about critical race theory, one specific application of critical theory uh, that we see uh, playing out pretty significantly in our culture and in, in our churches. That's right. Yeah. And so in our, our last episode, we defined it. Yeah. Four, so, four tenets? Uh, I think we hit five or six. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And even that, because it's a, it's a fairly amorphous category, yeah. you know, it's not, we're just trying to make things easier for our listeners who maybe have heard critical theory talked about or yeah. critical race theory yeah. described. We want you to know what ideas specifically we're interacting with. Yeah. Uh, and make sure you don't, misrepresent the, sure. the very thing that you're claiming to critique or or embrace. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the history of critical race theory, okay. both as an ideology, sort of okay. the, the lineage of it, yeah. and the historical context that gave rise to critical race theory. Okay. Both important things. Yeah. Sounds a little dry. I think it's going to be fantastic. So brace yourself. No, I think it's going to be great. Well, disclaimer, if, you, if you're not into history, yeah. uh, this is really important for you to understand our next episode, mm. which will be a critique of what we see as some of the deficiencies of critical race theory. Okay. If you don't understand the historical setting that this stuff developed in, yeah. you're not going to really grasp what we're saying. So right. buckle so, up. Yeah. Get ready. Yeah. So as an ideology... Yeah, as an ideology, there are, are two basic camps that this can be broken down into. The first camp would be represented by the figurehead, the kind of godfather of critical race theory, Derek Bell, right? And he yep. comes from what is sometimes called the materialist school of critical race theory. Materialist or critical legal studies. Yeah. So this is like the parent number one. This mm -hmm. is like the dad. So it, you have a, a school of thought that's really focuses on empirical data and disparities, mm -hmm. yep. uh, really focuses on uh, racism as being endemic in society. Remember, that's one of the, the first tenets we talked about last time. Yep. And these scholars advocate the structure of the legal system, of the economy, uh, of changes to that structure to benefit minorities. And they actually, they actually were strongly associated with black nationalism, which is not mm -hmm. something we're going to get into. Sure. Uh, and even advocated things like segregation which we see some of that coming back today in the, along yeah. the same vein. So, so basically this materialist, materialist school, this first generation of critical race theory deals with the economic, legal, and political aspects of race relations in America. That's right. Uh, you could, to simplify things, you, you could think of this as the, the show me the money camp. You know, yeah. they were really concerned with economic prosperity and, and redistribution. Yeah. So strong gotcha. influence of Marxism within this school of thought. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you can think this is the second parent. Okay. This is mom. You have the postmodernists. This is a little weird, though, because Kimberly Crenshaw, with the, who's the kind of figurehead here, she was actually a student of Derrick Bell's, and she kind of uh, a Plato and Aristotle thing kind of ran and took some of the ideas and made them her own. That's right. So the postmodernists were more concerned with linguistics, mm -hmm. uh, with power structure, with language. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you read about implicit biases and the rejection of objective and empirical data. That's all postmodernism. We've talked about this a little bit, and that postmodernism by itself was kind of useless. Yeah. It so, was pretty impotent. Right. And yeah. so to make postmodernism effective or mm -hmm. to apply it as applied postmodernism gets its name. Yeah. 
you have to actually grab onto something objective. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we, we see this, uh, this postmodernism coming in through feminism and mm-hmm. the two parents come together and they create critical race theory as, you know, the, the postmodern influence is where you, you could think of this as the, you know, words are violence side right. of, of the sort of stuff we hear today. Uh, and so while the postmodernists... Also, silence is violence. Silence is violence so, as well. Everything is violence. So while the postmodernists critiqued things in the materialist camp and vice versa, so you end up with a marriage of the two where critical race theory accepts certain aspects of postmodernism, like the positionality of knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, but really grabs onto this idea of objective truth and empirical data and, and grounds that in identity, in racial identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this resulted in a theory that... Uh, unlike postmodernism, could actually do something. Mm-hmm. Now, both of these, and and in their creation of critical race theory, we see one of the other tenets we talked about last time, which is a strong rejection of classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. So recall that classical liberalism is a view of the world that emphasizes uh, equal opportunity, uh, the individual and the rights of the individual yeah. uh, emphasizes liberty, both of the conscience and of religious freedom. And the civil rights movement, because of its its influence through classical liberalism, was really about equal opportunity. Right. Treat everybody equal. Treat everyone equal, regardless of their yeah. skin color. That's a that's a liberal virtue. Yeah. And when we say liberal, we sometimes think of like the far left end of our modern political spectrum. Right. Different meaning for that word. Right. Now, you can think of uh, a great way to summarize this would be what Martin Luther King said. You know, I have a dream that someday my kids will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Mm -hmm, That's classical liberalism applied to the racial issues in the United States. So we've already talked about how critical race theory views this. They see that at best as inadequate to address racial problems Mm -hmm. and at worst sort of a smokescreen where white supremacy is is looking like it's trying to help and in reality right. is just creating more systems and structures to preserve their dominance. Right. The example of that would be Derek Bell and his argument that Brown v. Board of Education is really just interest, interest convergence, white people trying to further solidify racism through what appears to be anti-racist legislation. That's right. So in the civil rights movement, you have... Brown v. Board of Education. You have uh, the end of, of legal discrimination and segregation. Yeah. Uh, you have the Fair Housing Act. All these things that are designed to create equal opportunity and, right. and to remove those barriers. And CRT says, yeah, not enough. And yeah. it, and it, it not enough and be, in many cases actually really bad. Right. Yeah. So that's the ideological family tree of how we got here. We have the influence of postmodernism, mm-hmm. uh, critical theory in the in the legal critical theory realm, and behind all that, as we've already talked about, if you haven't listened to our uh, our podcasts on critical theory, you have the the hand of Marxism. Right. So, how did this happen historically? Right. Well, in the 1960s to the 1990s. You have to really understand the picture of what was going on, particularly for the black community. So what we're about to get into is the historical context in which critical theory grew up in. Or you just that, said that way better than I did. Okay, good. Yeah, so there, this thing didn't just come out of nowhere. There, yeah. there was a historical context, and you're saying if you look between the 60s and the 90s at, at what we're about to discuss, these things that happened, critical race theory will actually make a lot more sense. That's right. So. Okay. So you have the civil rights movement in the in the sixties to the seventies, a lot of of big victories, like we just mentioned. Yeah. And yet 
by the 1970s, the black community was not doing well. And people wanted explanations. Yeah, in, in, in many respects, they're actually doing worse. So right. you could take all of these socioeconomic measures, uh, like the rates of joblessness, uh, college enrollment, household income. Rate uh, of imprisonment. Incarceration, yeah, yeah. All of these statistics were headed in the wrong direction. Right. So you have a black community who you know, ostensibly should be doing better given mm -hmm. all these laws that are in place and is actually doing way worse. So, you know, for example, more blacks are out of work in 1964 than they were in 1954. Mm -hmm. But that just, that doesn't add up. Right. So you have this on top of a number of race riots that are enormously, his, you know, historically big race riots that happened in the 60s. Right. You know, uh, Detroit was one of the hotbeds yeah. of this. LA, uh, hundreds St. of Louis, people killed, yeah. thousands of people arrested. And so you have a lot of people, particularly politicians, who have a strong interest in figuring out why is this happening? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? We've passed all the laws. We've done all the right things. Why isn't stuff getting better? So let's look at the Johnson presidency. LBJ, uh, during his time in office, was seeing these riots break out. And the worst riots, interestingly, were happening in these big liberal cities like Detroit and LA. In, where, the, in the north, out west, places north. you wouldn't expect them to happen. Yeah. Whereas the recently desegregated South was not having the same problems. So he wanted answers and he actually commissioned a group that became known as the Kerner Commission to figure out what was going on. Okay. So the Kerner Commission produced a report. And this report, to sum it up succinctly, basically said the problem is white racism. Right. That's it. So it rejected the idea that equal opportunity was the solution. And what we really needed was equal outcomes. Mm. Now, specifically, their economic outcomes that we're talking about. So, so the plan from the Kerner Commission, the suggestion was massive redistribution of wealth, increase the minimum wage, uh, and basically expand the welfare system to help bring up the black community out of the oppression of their white racist neighbors. Okay. So this became more or less the orthodoxy for the left side of the political spectrum for a generation. I mean, this yeah. is still the way that most Democrat-leaning voters think when they think about solving and, and reconciling racial problems in our country. Yeah, they see disparity and they think discrimination. That's right. It's okay. a very equal one-to-one. -one. Okay. So that's one answer that LBJ got. On the other hand, there was a report given to him by a sociologist and politician by the name of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was a Democrat. Uh, he worked for Johnson and he worked for JFK. Uh, and in 1965, he authored a report uh, and gave it to the Johnson administration that analyzed an enormous amount of sociological data on racial disparities and the black community. Mm -hmm. And he came to a dramatically different conclusion. Okay. Now, his conclusion was a little more complex. It didn't give like a very simple band-aid, like, oh, it's white racism, give everyone more money. He said that the problem is actually entrenched poverty and violence and joblessness in the black community, and that it was, it was due to the deterioration of the black family. Mm. Now, he actually went on to explain also why the black family was deteriorating. How could it not be? Right, exactly. Of, Number one, he yeah. said, look at their history. You have three centuries of enslavement mm -hmm. that literally broke families apart uh, in, in the buying and selling of, of human beings. Yeah. And I mean, you've probably heard the stories of directly after emancipation, uh, freed slaves yeah. walking miles barefoot, not to go get jobs, 
not to go start a, a you know a business to go find their wives and children and brothers who had been torn from them and and sold to some other sharecropper yeah. down the road. This, this is one of this is one of those facts that is helpful to bring up when you're having conversations with your conservative friend, who whenever they talk about race and race issues, always wants to very quickly point to the breakdown of the black family, but it's not really willing to. Uh, look at some of the historical factors and how racism and institutionalized racism led to the decay and degradation of the black family. That's right. Yeah. So he gives that's, you know, that's prong number one. Okay. Now the second prong that Moynihan pointed out is that even though legal freedoms had been achieved for blacks and, and discrimination and segregation were now illegal, there was a growing culture and trend of fatherlessness in the black community. And this was creating a deeply self-destructive vein that he referred to as ghetto culture. Mm. That was his, his phrase that he used to describe this. Now, Moynihan realized the importance of a stable nuclear family. Mm. And if you didn't have that, he recognized that it, it would fail to shape the character and ability of the children in that family. And they'd grow up to produce more broken yeah. families. A vicious cycle. That's right. It yeah. is a vicious cycle. And and his intuitions and his data pointed to this idea that children who are growing up in fatherless homes would be more likely to not get jobs, not create stable families themselves, to be incarcerated. To Early unwed pregnancies. Exactly. Yeah. All of those socioeconomic data that were being pointed to as the racial disparities that are the, you know, that are being caused by discrimination. Yeah. He said actually this is a vicious cycle, and it's a vicious cycle based on the deterioration of the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. So he produced a report, and it went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. Nobody wanted to hear this. Yeah. This was culturally the exact opposite of the way everyone was thinking at the time, and, and still today in many respects. So yeah. to defend the importance of the nuclear family was outrageous. He mm. was... He was Basically, he was told, you're blaming the victim, you're a racist, you're part of the problem, and he was totally discredited, and no one paid attention to this report. Mm. Now, some of this is the influence of feminism, and the civil rights movement had its own strains of critical race theory and feminism within it, sure. but the, the nuclear family by many of these ideologies was actually described as a toxic white hang-up. I mean, it was so taboo to talk about uh, and remained taboo to talk about the importance of the nuclear family well into the 90s. I mean, look at a good example of this uh, more contemporary example would be the book Divided by Faith. It's a okay. book that gets passed around evangelical circles quite a bit and deals with a lot of these questions about racial disparity. Not one time in that book is the topic of nuclear family and the epidemic of black fatherlessness described or mentioned. It just wasn't allowed. Yeah. So what you end up with is basically an argument that gets ignored. You know, there are a few people out there who paid attention to Moynihan and who agreed with him. A great example of this would be Thomas Sowell, mm. who sort of picked up the same line of reasoning. And Sowell did a tremendous job in arguing that it's actually the well-intended but misguided welfare policies mm -hmm. as part of the war on poverty which incentivized black fatherlessness. Right. And he argued very well, uh, you know, if you look at the data, there is, in 1960, 22% of black children were raised in single-parent families. Yeah. 50 years after that, 70% of black children were raised in single-parent families. Mm. This is after emancipation, after the civil rights yeah. movement, 
what's going on? Well, Sowell argued that it's these welfare policies that are creating the problem and, yeah. and continuing the vicious cycle. Yeah, he argues that these policies did more to harm the black family than, than uh, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, all of that combined. Yeah. yeah. So decades continue to pass. By the 1980s, the black community, particularly in the inner city, has unraveled. Uh, you have things getting worse and worse and people want answers. And so you get someone like Kimberly Crenshaw, who, as we've already mentioned, actually coined the term critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's observing this exact same thing. She writes, the African-American socioeconomic position in American society has actually declined in the last two decades. Average annual family income for African-Americans dropped 9% from the 1970s to the 1980s. Since 1969, the proportion of black men between 25 and 55 earning less than $5,000 a year rose from 8% to 20%. Mm. She goes on to talk about college enrollment rates, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So the point is, even the people who answer the question differently, right. people on the critical race theory side of the aisle, recognize the decline in the black community after the civil rights movement. Everybody's looking at all the same data. That's right. And they agree on it. But their explanatory, you know, the way their their explanation of this data is vastly different. That's exactly right. You have two different narratives to explain yeah. what's going on and very different answers. Okay. Now remember, this is important. Moynihan's data, his conclusion was not rejected on the basis of his sociological investigation. Right. Nobody said, Hey, your facts are wrong. Yeah. Nobody said, actually, you got this calculation incorrect. Yeah. His ideas were rejected because his conclusions were deemed to be off limits. Mm -hmm. He wasn't allowed to arrive at the conclusion he did. And so as we've already mentioned, he was rejected as a racist. Uh, he was rejected as victim blaming. And this is despite the fact that he was actually very careful to argue that ghetto culture was though it was driving black socio socioeconomic disparity, was a product of generations of slavery and yeah. discrimination and segregation. He, he very much had a both-and answer. That's right. right. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. So how could this downward trend in the black community be explained when Moynihan's answers weren't allowed? Mm -hmm. Enter critical race theory. Right. So critical race theory picks up on the views of the Kerner Commission. And early critical race theory began basically just taking for granted that the black community was suffering all of its socioeconomic woes, not because of anything cultural or behavioral or related to family structure, but purely because of white racism. And this is where you get the white racism that is secretive and subtle and hiding behind the achievements of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Because how else are you going to explain it when you have these very clear legal victories that should be making things better for yeah. black people in our country? So they categorically reject any explanation that starts to point at things like the nuclear family. And in fact, if you read about this today, you'll find, you'll encounter the phrase cultural racism. Okay. Cultural racism is a, is a disparaging term used to describe people who have views like Moynihan did. Yeah, so just like uh, Marxism went from economic to cultural, racism went from biological to cultural. That's the idea. Uh, a, a really good example of this is Eduardo Bonilla Silva. Uh, clearly, with the Moynihan Thomas Sowell camp in mind, he writes that cultural racism relies on culturally based arguments, such as Mexicans do not value education or blacks are violent people, to explain the standing of people of color in society. These views, once explained as biological, have been replaced by cultural ones that are just as effective in defending the racial status quo. 
So basically, if you look at the information, the, the facts, the data, and any part of your explanation points to some deficiency in a particular subculture, right, the Mexican, the black, whatever, then what you've done is you've committed cultural racism. That's right. Okay. Now, careful listeners might recognize a very clear logical fallacy in that response to Moynihan. We'll get to that next episode. Dun, 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 cliffhanger. Uh, he goes on to say, contemporary racial inequality is re reproduced through colorblind racist practices that are subtle, structural, and apparently non-racial. And again, in contrast to the Jim Crow era, where racial inequality and segregation were enforced through explicit means, today's racial practices operate in often subtle and obscure and not readily detectable ways. So basically, it was forced underground, and now it's incognito. That's right. So in other words, this downward trajectory in the black community post-emancipation, post-civil rights victories, is just the historical effect of racism and continued racism now slinking beneath the surface where no one can see it. Yeah. And it's from this fundamental premise that critical race theorists like Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw all operated. They yeah. begin with an answer to this basic historical question already solved in their minds. Which is itself just one big logical fallacy. That's right. right. Yeah. So basically, they argue that race has become the central and most important issue to virtually every conversation we can have now because it's all of the disparities and all the problems in society fall back onto this issue of race and racism. So what we have here is two very, to, to describe them very broadly, we have two basic camps trying to answer this fundamental historical question. And one of them has done a much better job in convincing the minds of academics and scholars and the American public in general. Uh, one of them, not so much. You know, it's, it's very uncommon, even in you, you know, evangelical circles, this stuff is being talked about a lot, which is why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, that's right. And you'll hear conversations about critical race theory. You know, should we take 10% of it? Should we take 50% of right. it? Should we just get rid of the unbiblical parts and keep it as an analytical tool? What you don't hear is people going back to the basic question that gave rise to critical race theory and challenging its assumptions about what's going on in the black community. And so to, to just an important thing to understand here, if you embrace any aspects of critical race theory, you're basically already assuming an answer to that fundamental question. Right. Why is there racial disparity like we see it? Yeah. And I want us to focus back on that question. Yeah. I want us to revisit some of the things that guys like Thomas Sowell and Patrick Moynihan have observed. Yeah. And I want to analyze their arguments. And I'd like to see more conversations in evangelical circles focus on that more basic question. Yeah. Now, in our last episode, we used an illustration. We talked about an illustration that I use often. I think it's very helpful. And that's the illustration of the grease fire. Uh, we all look at a grease fire and maybe we want to put it out. And so we run and grab water on it and not realizing that the water makes the grease fire turn into an inferno. And we said that that illustration kind of works like this. We're all standing around looking at this fire that is racism, and we say, oh, we want to put it out. And so we're going to do something helpful, and not realizing it, we grab CRT, thinking that it's going to be helpful, and it actually makes things way, way worse. Right. The problem with that illustration is that we all assume that the fire that we're looking at is actually racism. When in fact, uh, it may be some racism. As a matter of fact, it almost certainly is some racism. But it's also possible that it's just disparity. And the problem is, is that in, in our society and in the church, we have been taught to think that any time we see any disparity, 
racism, discrimination is necessarily the cause. That's right, which yeah. is a fundamental tenet of critical race theory itself. Yeah. So the people standing around arguing how to put out the fire of racism may be all very well intended. Yeah. Uh, and yet the, the two camps, well, you know, we need critical theory to solve this problem of racism. Yeah. No, we don't. We need little bits of critical theory and a lot of gospel. They're to still, solve this racism. They're both still looking at the fire yeah. and misidentifying it, we would argue, at yeah. least to a great degree. Sure. Uh, and and will inevitably uh, not see their their own assumptions have already been influenced by critical race theory yeah, that's in, right. in their identification of the problem. So that's the point of this historical analysis. Uh, we are in our next episode yeah. going to talk specifically about the deficiencies of critical race theory, our critique of critical race theory. Yeah. Uh, and we pray that we'll be balanced and careful in that uh, sure. and, and that it will be helpful to those who are thinking through these issues. Yeah. Uh, I think that's all we got for this episode. Uh, Signing off for the DC Podcast, I'm Sean. I'm still Russell. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs)